0: Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. So in the spring of uh, 2013, I'm gonna try to make some friends here. Uh, but in the spring of 2013, a debut crime fiction novel from a writer by the name of Robert Galebraith hit the shelves. The book received uh, generally positive reviews, but it experienced very modest sales. Over its first three months, it sold 8,500 copies. By the summer of 2013, sales had dipped significantly. During the week of July 7th, the book just sold... 43 copies. Then how did The Cuckoo's Calling, which is the name of the book, make it make a jump to become the best-selling book in the US and the UK? How did it jump from just 43 copies during the week of July 7th to 662 copies during the week following? How did a book that was sitting comfortably at 4,709th on Amazon's bestseller list immediately jump to first place? Well, it was revealed that Robert Galbraith was a pseudonym for J.K. Rowling, the best-selling author of the Harry Potter series. Rowling, of course, was very upset, and she sued the law firm that had revealed her name and demanded that the law firm make a sizable donation to charity for their mistake. Here's what I tell you that for. We would like to think that the world is fair and doesn't evaluate people based on their name, status, or position. But you know that that's not true. We all make judgments. We all make evaluations. We're all judged and we're all evaluated. And we do this stuff all the time, from food to film, from athletes to academics, from social media posts to social engagements, from politics to personalities. We look up to some people and we look down on others. Sometimes we have an over-inflated evaluation of ourselves so sometimes we fear that if people really knew who we were, they would see the truth, so we have to keep a, a blown-up appearance. So therefore, in self-defense, we overly scrutinize and judge other people. The cycle continues. We give ourselves a better evaluation and give others a lower evaluation, or we give ourselves a lower evaluation and we give to, other, to others a very high evaluation. Well, can I tell you more specifically when it comes to our text this morning that many love to judge the pastor? Criteria for a pastor's success is sometimes how much influence does he have? What is his gifting? How effective is he? Some people judge the minister's success by the number of services he has, the the number of, of offerings he takes, and the size of those offerings, the size of his church staff, and really does he ever appear at speaking engagements across the state and different things. And here's the, the problem with that. That's all an offense to God. Because God has nowhere said that those are the criteria by which we should judge a pastor. Let me make it a little more specific for you the corinthians in first corinthians chapter 4 were judging their pastors and they were using those world standards to evaluate whether they liked cephas paul or apollos better that's what they were doing so in our text this morning as as we continue our study of first corinthians paul's going to tell us the proper way to evaluate minister's And really, I would say to anyone who serves the Lord in his church, not just specifically pastors, but all those who administer his word, really what Paul is going to do is he's going to say, listen, you need to evaluate how you're evaluating because the system by which you're evaluating is wrong. So the first evaluation you need to make is the evaluation system by which you're evaluating. And then Paul tells us, What are the criteria to properly evaluate those who serve the Lord? So I know you're probably tired of doing this, and now I join you in this. But I'm I'm all about keeping you awake. And so I want you to know, really, the reason, hear my heart again, If some of you are new and you're listening by way of of our Facebook, online, I want you to know, I'm going to put my cards out on the table and tell you, I want you to distinguish between when God is speaking and God isn't. I want you to recognize that when we read from this book, it is as if God himself is speaking. And we can't just passively pretend that he's just a friend up here saying something. This is what God says. Something dynamic happens when his word is read. Do you believe that? So let's stand together in honor of God, the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself for I'm conscious of nothing against myself yet I am not by this acquitted but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time but wait until the Lord comes who will bring both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts And then each man's praise will come to him from God. You may be seated and may God bless his holy word. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning, that we can evaluate based on a proper estimation. We can evaluate based on a proper estimation. In verse 1, he says, let a man regard us in this manner. He, He mentions us. This is a reference back to Paul, Apollos, and Cephas and the fellow workers in Corinth. And then he says, let let a man regard us in this manner, which tells us that there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to regard God's servants. We can't use worldly methods to evaluate like the ones I previously mentioned. And then he says, let us regard one another in this manner. That, That word regard is a word that it refers to bookkeeping. It means to give an account. Even better translation would be to calculate or to reckon. In other words, when you think about the man of God, make your calculations this way as opposed to another way. Men are to be reckoned or calculated or evaluated according to two estimations Paul gives us. First, he says, we are to be servants who are under the authority of the word we to be servants who are under the authority of the word. Well, pastor, where do you get that? Well, he says there, let us regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. Do you see that? Paul uses two words from the work of slaves. There were many people in the Corinthian atmosphere who were slaves. There were many slaves in the Roman Empire. So it would be expected that there would be different words to talk about the status or work of those slaves. It's interesting that these two words, the first one I've mentioned to you, it refers to the lowest assignment given, and then the next word is it refers to the highest assignment given to a slave. He first uses the word regard us as servants. That is a word that means an under rower, one who's under the authority of someone else. It's a word to talk about the most menial, undervalued, unenviable and even despise work of a slave. Really, Paul is using the word for a galley slave. You may not know what a galley slave is, so I want you to see this picture up on the screen. The galley slave is the one that is under the belly of the ships that the Roman fleet would use. Paul has seen these galley ships headed out to the sea. He'd seen the galley slaves with all their oars moving rhythmically back and forth and up and down. They were long in lines and they were chained to their seats. They're almost glued to those oars. Paul had seen the overseers with their whips in their hand, ready to discipline any under who was not giving his best effort. He'd seen the slave master barking orders, commanding for a faster pace or for one side to hold their oar while the other side pulled frantically to turn the ship. He'd heard the drum beating at an endless rhythm which controlled the number of strokes per minute and made sure the oars would be pulled in harmony and in time with each other. Paul is saying that ministers are not the overseers with whips in their hands driving people to endless futility and toil. Ministers are not slave masters barking orders while sitting back in ease. He's not the man beating the drum for everybody else to work to. The minister is simply an under rower obeying the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is under the authority of another. He is to pull the oars to his master's command and do so in harmony and cooperation and fellowship with everyone else who's in the same ship called the church. Paul is connecting the idea of the galley slave to one who is to obey or be under the authority of the word of God. So if there's to be an evaluation made of ministers, we're to make an evaluation based on an estimation of how well that minister is under the authority of the word of God. As fellow ministers and specifically as pastors, we're simply galley slaves propelling forward the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. We'll have the hardest labor, the cruelest of punishment, and the least appreciation, and for many what seems to be the hopeless of all existences. Yet we row on. So on the one hand, we're the lowest of all. But then Paul tells us secondly, We're to be stewards who are over the affairs of the Word. Not only are we these these servants who are under the authority of the Word, but we're stewards who are over the affairs of the Word. Paul then uses the Word in verse 1. He says, as servants of Christ and then as stewards of the mysteries of God. That word steward, it has the word in Greek, the word for house in it. It's the one who manages the affairs of a master's household. The steward was the slave who had been given charge of being the manager of the entire house, of an entire estate, the property, the fields, the vineyards, the finances, the food, and even the other servants of the master. The minister, the servant of God, has something especially entrusted to him, something he is over, something he is to manage, namely the mysteries of God. This is the word of God. The minister is to take that which cannot be known other than divine revelation and offer it to others on behalf of the master. He is to be over the affairs of the word of God. All things related to the word of God is what the steward of the church is is responsible for. This is his estate of which God has made him steward. So any estimation of a minister or those serving and the and the word with the word of God should be on how well the minister is over or handling the affairs concerning the word of God. We're on the one hand, the lowest of lows. On the other hand, we'd be given an exalted position. We're galley slaves, yet trusted managers of the mysteries of Christ. I don't know if you guys have ever seen those little guessing things where you have a a bucket or a clear cylinder or something, and it has all kinds of stuff in it, like M&Ms or something. You have to guess how many there are. At a conference Justin and I attended last month, I went by a booth, and there was a church planner there who was playing churches up in Denton, Texas. He had a big jar on his table that was filled with these little bitty balls And he told me if I could properly estimate how many balls are in the jar, he would give me a copy of his new book. I I didn't even have a point of reference. I mean, I said, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll try to count how many balls can maybe make a row from the bottom to the top, and then I'll count basically how many rows are around it, and that'll at least give me an idea. So I tried that, and I told him, and he said, (laughs) bro, you are... You are way off. I was like, well, then help me. He said, okay, the number of balls in this jar represent the number of people in Denton, Texas who do not know Jesus. Well, being from Texas, not. I don't even know where Denton is. (laughs) I don't even know how many people there are in Denton. Much less how many churches are there. Bro, thanks, but no thanks. I don't have any idea. He saw the struggle was real. And he said, hey, let me help you. Just say this and I'll give you my book. Okay. All right. So I did it. Well, here's the, here's the idea. I think that's what happens when it comes to stuff in church world. A lot of times we don't even, we don't even have a proper idea of where to even begin to to judge those or to evaluate those who handle the things of God. It's not our world. It's not what we know. So what we do is we devise our own systems and we put our own ways of doing it in place. And then sometimes we guess, and can I tell you, we're way off base sometimes. We come up with our own ways and we deal with many unknowns and we make determinations that may miss it by a mile, But can I tell you today, I'm thankful that we don't have to make estimations on our own, that God has given us two words that help us determine how to guess, know how to know if the minister is doing what he's supposed to be doing. Is he being a good steward over the affairs of the word of God? And is he being subservient or is he being a servant and placing himself under the authority of the word of God? If he's doing that, that's all the Lord's ask of him. And that's all you should ask of him. For all of us here this morning, maybe we can personally estimate how well we're doing. But I wonder how well would you say, would you give yourself an estimation? How well would you judge yourself of being under the authority of God's word in every area of your life? You expect that of me. Well, God expects it of you too. Remember, we're all in the same boat. I wonder how well you're doing when it comes to making sure you're managing the things that God has given you concerning what He's told you. I'm thankful that Seth has learned that God's made him a steward of a new responsibility. He's going to carry that work on to the glory of God, aren't you? How well are you doing, church? being under the word of God and then doing the things that God's asked you to do concerning his word. We can evaluate based on a proper estimation. Then secondly, Paul teaches us this. We can evaluate based on a pressing expectation. On a pressing expectation. Look there in verse two. He says, in this case, moreover, did did you see that? Moreover, it is required of stewards, the people that we've just talked about, that one be found what church Trustworthy. Because we're ministers and stewards of something that belongs to somebody else, we should then expect that there's going to be an account that will be given for how well we've done it. Unless the minister is faithful and found trustworthy with his master's household and possessions, he will most likely ruin both of them. There is one requirement and only one, and that is that we are all found faithful. God doesn't ask for creativity. He doesn't ask for brilliance. He doesn't ask for cleverness, popularity, go on and on. The only thing God asks of me and really asks of you is faithfulness. Paul's already set this example in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 with in verse 17 when he says these words. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and what? Faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Church, you know this? God supplies his spirit. God supplies his word. He gives us the power. He gives us the gifts. But the minister supplies faithfulness. He's to faithfully proclaim the truths of God's word, the whole counsel of God's word. And he is only concerned with being faithful to his Lord. Dr. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary says these words. He said, a steward may not please the members of the household and he may not even please some of the other servants. But if he pleases his own master, he is a good steward. In context, because Paul has mentioned us, the issue is not who's most gifted, who's the most talented, Who's the most successful? Who's the most prominent? Who's the most useful? Who's growing the church the best? It's not as Paul, Cephas, or Apollos the best. It is rather, have Paul, Cephas, and Apollos been faithful? Have they been found trustworthy? Listen, there may be many who serve God better than me. There may be many who serve God better than you. Many who are used in greater ways than me Are you, one who can do many more things in the kingdom than you or me. But you and I are the only ones that can be faithful to the best that we can be faithful. That, my dear friends, is what the Lord requires. That's what he requires of me. Many may preach. Many may pastor better than me. But I am not in a contest with any of them. The only thing the Lord is asking me and you to do is to be faithful with what God has given you and me. So, are you judging sermons based on how good they are? Or how faithful the man of God is to the text that he's preaching? Are you evaluating each other on how good someone is serving in the body? Or just how faithful they are? A little boy was at the board doing many math problems the teacher had written up on the board and the teacher was pressing him to finish every single problem. The little boy turned to the teacher and said, ma'am, what I've discovered is that I'm not an underachiever. You're just an over-expector. Well, let's not worry about the pressing expectations of others. Let's just be Focused on being faithful to what the Lord requires of us. So I have to ask you, are you being faithful? Let me go to meddling for a minute. Are you being faithful to attend church? Pressing. Are you being faithful to tithe? Are you being faithful to your spouse? Are you being faithful to serve in some area in this church? Students, are you being faithful to study in school? Are you being faithful to whatever the Lord may be speaking to your heart? Are you being faithful? Am I being faithful? That's what the Lord requires. So we can evaluate based on a proper estimation and a pressing expectation. And then lastly, very quickly, we can evaluate based on a particular examination. Particular examination, verses three through five, Paul says these words. He says, but to me, listen to this, it's a very small thing that I'm examined by you (laughs) or by any court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet by this, I'm not even acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before time, but wait until the Lord comes. Who will bring judgment? Both the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart and then each man's praise will come to him. Well, Paul breaks this down, this examination, if you will, into three areas. He says, first of all, we shouldn't be concerned with others' judgment. shouldn't be concerned with others' judgment. He uses the word examined there it's a small thing that I be examined by you. And then he says, or I don't even examine myself, or but the one who examines me is the Lord. That word examine, it can be translated judged. Really what it means is to be examined. It was used to describe the preliminary examination in preparation for a trial. Then Paul says that it's a small thing to be judged by others. And this is where Uh, intense Bible study will will help. There's a word there when he says very small thing. It's the superlative of a word "micros," which is where we get our word microscope. The word means infinitesimally or extremely above all small. What Paul is saying, it's not just a small thing. He's saying it's the most insignificant thing of all that I should be judged by others. That's what he's saying. It should be the smallest thing in the world to me, what you think of me. In other words, don't worry the slightest bit about how others try to judge you. We're to spend less time worrying about what other people think of us. For living with a clean conscience before God, it won't matter what others think. Some of the best servants of God have been harshly and wrongly criticized by people who were unworthy to even untie their shoes. We're fruit inspectors. We're not root inspectors. We may disagree with people on any number of issues, but it is never possible to fully know the motivations of somebody's heart. Thus, it makes it painful when others try to judge us without knowing our motives. Paul says it's the smallest thing to him to worry about any other's judgment by any human court. Literally, that, that is literally to be judged by any human day. It's the rare use of the word day, and it's in contrast with that day that he's mentioned up in chapter three earlier, the, the day when we stand before Jesus. Paul made it clear that we will give an account and that that those things that we're not using to serve and to build up the kingdom of God will be burnt up. We will stand before Christ on that day and give an account. So any judgment by man is simply not what matters. Any day of judgment on part of man is incredibly insignificant to Paul and should be to us too. So we shouldn't be concerned with others' judgment. But then Paul says we shouldn't be concerned with our own judgment. Paul says, I don't even examine myself. Well, that doesn't mean that he's never scrutinized himself. Surely he wanted to make sure that his actions and motives were pure before God. Yet Paul even knew that his own heart and his own mind could deceive him. He understood, as we should, that there will be times where if He were to judge himself, it would not be sufficient, and it may not even be correct. On the other hand, sometimes self-judgment is overly too harsh. Paul knew that he didn't even know his own heart's motives. He knew he didn't even understand what his own heart decided to do at times. He knew what Jeremiah knew, that the heart is exceedingly deceitful. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul knew that if he couldn't properly judge himself, watch this, then the Corinthians couldn't do it either. If I don't even know what's going on in here, how can you? He was also aware that one of the devil's favorite methods of destruction is morbid self-introspection. The devil loves for us to look at ourselves and hate everything we see and to talk to our ways that violate the image of God in us, to hate ourselves and to believe that we are so bad we don't deserve to live or we can never change. Paul doesn't do that either. So knowing that, he says, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. That's interesting. Even if we did have the ability to examine ourselves and find nothing in ourselves, that doesn't mean that we're still right before God. Because the heart can deceive us. Our minds and memories can fail you. So there is only one examination that matters. And that's the only one we should be concerned about because Paul says this, then we should be concerned with only one judgment. He says there, but the one who examines me is the Lord. The only one who can properly examine or judge is the Lord. Here, we tend to judge before we know all the facts, right? We, we tend to judge before we even know the full motives, before we've let things settle down and proper conclusions can be made. We most often make judgments before their time, is what Paul says. Paul says, therefore, Don't go on passing judgment before the time. That's an interesting word. There are two words for time in the Bible. One is the word chronos, and that's the word we get chronologic from or chronology from. It means to measure time in sequence of events. That's not the word Paul uses here. He uses the word kairos. Kairos means a significant moment in time. So Paul is saying that there's going to be a significant moment, a certain moment in time when all things are properly judged, examined, and evaluated. And that time is on the Lord's day when we stand before Jesus. There is coming a time for judgment, but we're not the ones to judge, and it's not going to be in our time. It'll be in God's time, so we should focus on that. When this happens, he says, the Lord will bring all the hidden things to light. And the Lord will even examine the motives by which we did everything. That's very humbling to me. Because as your pastor, there have been times in my life where I have tried to witness because I wanted people to know I was right with God rather than being concerned for the soul of a lost person doing the right thing with the wrong motive. It's very dangerous. The hidden things will be brought to light and the motives of our heart will be revealed. At the same time though, there are some things that we've done that nobody's seen and there are some motives that others have so poorly judged that it's hurt our feelings. I've got some great news because in verse five, the last part he says, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. The Lord sees everything that you do. And the Lord knows every one of the motives of your heart that was right. And God says, listen, this is crazy. Did you see that? It almost sounds blasphemous, but but did you see it? That God will even praise you. That blows my mind. God sees, and He will even praise you. I saw that. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Paul knew the rest of Jeremiah 17. See, Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? But then verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give each person according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. That goes both ways. So aren't you thankful there's someone who can make the right judgments at the right time and reward accordingly? I'm so thankful. Think about Judas. Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus in a moment in time. I borrow from John Phillips here when he says none of the disciples suspected Judas. He was, after all, the only Judean in that little Galilean band of the Lord's disciples. He was their treasurer. Sounds like he was a steward. He had earned a reputation of having compassion for the poor. Must have been a servant. And when he criticized Mary's gift of expensive ointment, the other disciples joined in his lead. So when the Lord announced in the upper room that one of those present would betray him, Judas, even self-deceived, said, is it I? When the Lord said to him, what you do, do quickly, the disciples thought Judas was being sent out on on an errand. So thoroughly did he cover up the hidden darkness in his own soul. But Judas did not deceive Jesus. The Lord knew all about him. The Lord said, have I not chosen you 12? Then Jesus said, but one of you is a devil. When John pointedly asked Jesus in the upper room who the betrayer was, Jesus gave him a sign and then pointed directly to Judas. Judas was able to play act the part of a disciple so well that he even deceived the very elect of God. But Jesus read his mind and knew his heart. And beloved, I am here today to tell you that he can read your mind and he knows your heart just as well. We don't need to judge the others of the Lord's servants. That's for the Lord. We have enough to take care of on our own. Amen. Judas even asked, is it I? Because Jeremiah is still so true. The heart is deceitful. It is desperately wicked. Judas couldn't even judge himself properly. And the others couldn't judge him properly. But the only one who could judge him properly was the Lord. So we can make the wrong estimation. We can have the wrong expectation of others, even make the wrong evaluations. But the Lord Jesus knows Therefore, we are to evaluate on a particular examination and that's with the Lord. So, we can evaluate based on a proper estimation, a pressing expectation, and a particular examination. Jeremy, would you and your team come? I want you to look at this picture. You see, here's something that many people may not be aware of and I'm not trying to impress you. It's just simply a way of illustration. When you think of a Viking, most people think of a fearsome warrior. And usually in our mind's eye, we always see Vikings with horned helmets. But did you know that Vikings never wore horns on their helmets? Did you know that during the 8th and 11th centuries, The Vikings swept through Europe so effectively and were destroying everything that the Christian church said we have to demonize them. And the only way that they could think to demonize them were to depict them wearing helmets with horns. So you and I have probably been through a lot of history classes and been through a lot of things making a wrong judgment of those fearsome warriors because somebody else had judged them and demonized them. And we do it all the time. We may have done that because we simply didn't know and we just took somebody else's word for it. That'll get you in a lot of trouble. Maybe we judge people because we just didn't want to really deal with it. We just didn't want to do the research. That's fine too. We get in a lot of trouble with that. Sometimes we don't know to know, don't want to know, or haven't sought to know. And I think that that is a huge mistake. So have you unfairly been believing things that are simply not true about people? Especially those who serve the Word of God. Have you taken somebody else's word and not really got to know them yourself. Have you been basing your evaluation on what God requires or what men require? I want it this way. I think it should be done that way. And if they're not doing it that way, they must be wrong. Is that how the Lord's told us to operate? Have you allowed personal preferences, preconceived ideas or other things to affect your view and how you interact or even relate with those who may minister side-by-side with you in this church. Let me challenge you with this thought. Why would you ever put horns on people who were never meant to wear them? Why? Why demonize So, this altar this morning, very boldly, I would tell you, is for those who need to repent. If the Lord has convicted you in your heart that you've been doing some of this and and the application could be far and wide, the Lord sometimes will apply this to something you did at work, not necessarily your church. The Lord knows and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. So this this altar is for those who need to come and repent. This altar is also for those who would come and allow the Lord to minister to you because of the pain you may have experienced because somebody has judged you and it's hurt you deeply. And then this altar really is also for anyone who doesn't want to face the wrath and judgment of God because of your sin. And you want to ask the Lord to forgive you of all your sin, to place your faith in Him, that He died, was buried, and raised again for you to give you the forgiveness He so deeply desires to give to you. The Lord doesn't want to judge you. He judged Jesus so that He doesn't have to judge you. Please come and allow Him to judge Jesus in your place. I'm going to pray and then we'll stand and do what the Lord has asked us to do. Holy Spirit of God, would you move in this place? For without you, these words truly are just words. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you stand and sing and come as the Lord leads you.